All right, well, we'll get started here this morning. People, as I said, will be coming in. So my name is Josh Carey. For those of you who don't know, most of you know me. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, this is Apologetics and Evangelism. I'm looking forward to this. Uh, I've been thinking about it here for the last number of weeks and, and doing some reading and studying. And so I think it'll be beneficial. One of the things that the Lord has been convicting me of just personally lately is my, um, my lack of engagement with unbelievers. And, and I think for many of us, we all feel uh, often intimidated by engaging with unbelief, whether it be uh, your coworker, whether it be an unbelieving family member. Personally, for me, I actually find that the hardest. I, I find it much easier to talk to somebody on the street that I don't know, or somebody, just a, maybe an acquaintance or a friend, even a, a someone at work that I've worked with before, to talk with them, to, to share the gospel with them, even to call them to repent and believe, than to talk with family members. And I think that's the case with all of us. Uh, many of us find, or not all of us, but many of us, they find, we find that speaking with those closest to us is often the most difficult. So my hope in this semester is that as we, uh, as we think of apologetics, we're going to talk a little bit what, what apologetics is and kind of lay some foundation stuff. So the title of this morning's uh, first session is Foundations for Apologetics and Evangelism, Part 1. Real original, right? Foundations for Apologetics and Evangelism, Part 1. So if you're putting it on the, on the online deal, that's what you can put on the title. Um, but as I said, the Lord has been working on me, convicting me, and in his providence, that's, that's often when, like, when the Lord's convicting you and you're praying, okay, Lord, grant me opportunities and courage. Well, then he's going to put all these opportunities in front of you, right? And so even just a, a few weeks, a couple weeks ago, uh, Michael and I, we had an opportunity to have a fairly lengthy conversation with somebody who came to the door and to, uh, to share the gospel and kind of engage in some of these discussions with him and basically give him a reason for the hope that is in us. And so I, I hope that this is a time of equipping for us all, encouraging, and really my desire is not that, like, this is just the beginning of it, is that you would then take what you learn here and that you would apply it. You would take these truths to the highways and byways of life and that we would see many people come to believe in Jesus Christ. That's the ultimate aim, just to state it right out front. That's the ultimate aim. The ultimate aim is not to win an argument. It's not to, you know, do the Michael Jordan, Jordan slam dunk on your opponent. It is to see someone come to submit to Jesus Christ as Lord. And so uh, that, that's the aim of apologetics. Uh, but before we get going, I'm just going to open in prayer and ask that the Lord would help us in our time and, and that he would stir us up and encourage us through our time together. Let's pray together. So Father, as we come and we are people who recognize that there's a, there, there are so many issues out there there are so many unbelievers, people who are hostile in opposition towards you, many of whom are, they're, they, they don't even know the truth, and yet they do know it deep down, even as your word has said in Romans 1. And so we ask that you would help us as your people to, uh, to grow in our confidence in the truth, that we would have... Um, an understanding of the reasons for the hope that is in us and that we would be strengthened in our faith, that we might be willing and able to share with those around us, even family members and friends and all those that you would put into our lives. And so we ask, Lord, that you would equip us in this time together 
And even, uh, even as we think of uh, this Sunday school season that's starting, we pray for the kids and for those in the other classes, the other adult classes, and ask that this would be a season of learning and growth, and that all of us together, we would become not just hearers of the word, but doers as well. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So any of you that have kids, you've probably experienced then this avalanche of why questions, right? The why questions in life. So the parent comes to the kid and says, you got to clean that up. Why? Right? Well, because I said so. Well, well, why do you care? Well, because it teaches you responsibility. Well, why do I need to learn to take responsibility? Well, because God created you to take responsibility and to keep order. And this is one way to do that. Well, why does God care about how I keep order? Right? And the, and the questions just keep coming. Why, why, why? We've all experienced it. And those questions, they don't stop with a four-year-old or a five-year-old or a ten-year-old. In fact, they just keep getting more sophisticated as time goes on, right? We're all, we're all asking why questions. And so the why questions move from why can I have, you know, a cookie for breakfast to questions like why would a good God and one who is all-powerful choose to make a world in which there's so much evil? Or why do you believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven? Or why do Christians sing at funerals? Why should I listen to and order my life according to this book? Why is God angry at sinners if he created them and ordained and knew that they were going to rebel against him? Why are Christians so unloving towards those who follow other religions? Why can't you Christians just get along? All these kinds of questions, many of which have been asked by people since the beginning of time, uh, are, are questions that are at the heart, why questions, right? They're, they're seeking reasons for why we do what we do, why we believe what we believe. And just to be clear, as we situate this kind of, what I want to do here at the beginning is situate apologetics sort of within its biblical theological framework. So we went through biblical theology last fall, Biblical theology, anybody remember basically what biblical theology is? Just give me a quick one, two-sentence definition of biblical theology. Yeah, so you're tracing the themes throughout all of Scripture. You're kind of following the progress of Revelation and seeing what has God done in history and then what difference does it make for my life. So as we think about apologetics in this kind of biblical theological framework, we see that God, in the very beginning, he created humans in his image. Right? And there's lots that we could say about what it means to be created in the image of God. But certainly, one of the ways that makes us unique as humans is that we are people who have an ability to think and to meditate and to think on thinking. Right? We can actually think about thinking. The animals, you know, dogs, whales, your pet, they don't think and ask the why questions, do they? At least my, my pets don't. I don't have any pets, but my former pets, the ones that are gone now, um, they don't ask the why questions, right? They don't ask why. They're, they're not concerned about 
things like metaphysics. Now, it's a fancy word. It basically means what is real versus what is illusory. What's real versus what's an illusion. They don't think about ontology, which means they don't think what it means to be a human. What is the essence of our being? And what lies then at the essence of my purpose in life? And they certainly don't think about ethics. What is the morally right response to the situation and why? So this is, these, these are the kinds of deep things that human beings created in God's image are able to reflect on, to meditate on. Uh, it, it means that in part we are beings who relate to God and his world in a self-conscious, reflective way. And it's an inescapable part of reality. We are created to think on things, to feel certain affections, and to make then certain decisions in light of the facts around us. Uh, in his book called Know Why You Believe, which is kind of a book that I've been using, it's a book actually I'll recommend. I'll bring it here next week and show it to you. It's called Know Why You Believe. Uh, the author's name is Scott Oliphant. He's a professor at Westminster Seminary in, uh, in Philadelphia. Scott Oliphant says, the reason the why question begins at an early age is because we are interested in the reason for the things in our world. We ask the why questions for mental and practical relaxation. What we are after in asking why is a place of rest. I think Oliphant's right in that human beings are seeking rest, right? They're seeking this, this place of rest, which I think Oliphant's just picking up on what Augustine, many of you know, we, we talked about Augustine last semester, church history, Augustine, arguably one of the most important figures in church history, well, in the first, on the first lines of his book, The Confessions, Augustine wrote these famous words, Thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until it rests in thee. Thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until it rests in thee. So God, just thinking again, biblical theology, beginning with creation, God has made us in his image not only to think on these things, but to find our rest, intellectual rest, emotional rest, all these different aspects of our being to find our rest in a proper relationship to him. And that proper relationship looks like fundamentally one that is living under his authority. We're going to talk about in next week, this creator-creature distinction. Okay, so people all around us, you just think of the world, is full of restless people, right? People just anxiety, full of anxiety, not at rest. And they're not at rest ultimately because they are in rebellion against God. That, that's the ultimate reason they're not at rest. Because God created us to find our rest in a right relationship to him. Well, they're not in a right relationship to him. Rather, they're living rebellious, lawless lives, you know, going about doing their own thing, pursuing their own passions, and so they're not at rest. And so, we see then, you know, Adam and Eve, in the, right in the Garden of Eden, created in God's image, given this task of exercising dominion over the whole earth by doing things with an awareness to their duty their responsibility to honor and obey God as his creatures. 
And that's really then the apologetic work is that we're going into a world that is unrest, full of, full of unrest. It's restless. People restless because of their rebellion against God. And we're coming then with the gospel. The gospel that gives rest. Of course, remember Jesus' words in Matthew 11. Right? Come unto me, all ye who uh, labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Right? So that's, that's the apologetic work, is we're going into a restless world because of the rebellion of sin, and we're, we're taking these truths, and we're seeking to give people the truth in which there is hope. In which there is hope. And so since the fall, even, even since the fall of Satan, there has been this battle for truth. And more specifically, there has been a battle for ultimate allegiances. And so apologetics seeks to defend the truth, and yet we must recognize that the ultimate battle belongs to the Lord. The ultimate battle belongs to the Lord. Uh, another book that I've been working on, written by the same author, Scott Oliphant, called The Battle Belongs to the Lord, kind of used, uh, used David and Goliath as this illustration, this analogy of, of really what then the apologetic work is. Well, of course, David, he, he's not coming there in his own strength, in his own wisdom. In fact, it's the complete opposite. He's weak. You know, he's, he's essentially unarmed except for a, a sling and a few little stones. And yet, he is able to take down Goliath. And yet, it's because the Lord has fought for his people. Right? The Lord has fought. It is his battle. And so, same, as, same case in apologetics. We're, we're mere agents. Pastor Clint's going to preach about it here. The weapons of our warfare. Well, in the eyes of the world, these weapons of our warfare are very weak. They're very weak. Uh, one of the illustrations I always like to think of when I think of this kind of spiritual warfare aspect is, is Jericho, Joshua 6. You remember Israel, right? They're given these instructions. You've got to march around the city, you know, and then on the seventh day, you've got to march around it seven times and then shout, and the Lord's going to bring the city down. Well, you think of that from just from a, a, a warfare strategy point of view. It's like, that's complete folly, right? You don't just march around a city and scream and yell and expect your, your enemies to come crumbling down. But that's precisely the way that the Lord works. He uses weak human means so that he gets the glory. Even the preaching of the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel, the declaration of the truth by weak vessels like you and me. And so it's very, made very clear then when somebody gets saved, well, it wasn't because we were so clever, we were so great, our, our weapons were so strong, but it is because the Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, gave them life. And so this class is aimed then for all of us. It's aimed, um, it's, it's not just aimed for unbelievers. I, I think that's one thing that people often think is apologetics is just for unbelievers. Well, it is obviously, you know, how we engage with unbelief, but it's also aimed at strengthening our faith, that we might be strengthened in knowing why we believe what we believe, being confident that this is the truth, and so we can take it with confidence, and we can engage um, at a level that's, that's proper, respectful, even with those who disagree with us and are maybe even hostile towards us. So my hope is that through this class, 
your faith, my faith, our confidence in the Word of God is strengthened. It's strengthened. That we, we all come away here having, having been strengthened in our understanding of the reasons we have to believe what we believe. And then that would better equip us than to take the truth to every kind of square inch of life, to the workplace, families, all these different aspects, uh, politics, you know, all, all the different aspects and spheres of life, and to apply it properly. And so in this first couple of classes, as I said, I want to lay the foundations for a biblical apologetic method. And then we're going to spend a good deal of the semester thinking through some of the particular questions uh, and even the accusations maybe that then believers receive from unbelievers as we, as we engage with them. So we're going to cover questions like, you know, why should we believe the Bible? Why should we believe the Bible's true? Why believe in God? Why believe in God when there's so much evil? Why believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Why believe in miracles in the face of modern science? All these kinds of things. Objections, questions that people have that they've had for years. But we're also going to think on some kind of unique contemporary questions that maybe people in the past haven't had to deal with in the same degree that we have to. Namely, kind of the hostility we're facing from, from some of the LGBTQ and, uh, and some of those sectors of of, uh, of the world. So there's perennial questions, then there's some unique contemporary challenges, and we're going to look at these from a biblical worldview. But this morning, I want you to turn, to me to f- turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. Many of you will know this is kind of the locus classicus, the, the, you know, the classic location that you find uh, a, a call to apologetics. So 1 Peter chapter 3. So I want us to consider the nature of the calling that all Christians have to the apologetic task. So our calling to the apologetic task, 1 Peter chapter 3, I'm actually going to start beginning there in verse 13. It says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil." So the calling, very clearly, is that all Christians are called to be prepared to give this defense. So this is, this is for all believers. You've got to remember here, who is Peter writing to? Is he writing just to the pastors? Just to the seminary educators? No, if you go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, he introduces the book, and he tells us who he's writing to. So who is this for? 1 Peter 1, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So the elect exiles, those who have been chosen by God, chosen for salvation, uh, as he goes on and talks about later, 
according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. So these are people who have been covered by the blood of Christ and are now called to live obedient lives in submission to him. And of course, many of you are familiar, you know, the context of 1 Peter is that he's writing to Christians who are facing suffering. Uh, Now, this is under the Emperor Nero. It's probably written somewhere in 64, 65 AD. Uh, This is before kind of the state-sponsored, you know, statewide Roman persecution where there was people being hung on cross, Christians being hung on crosses and lit up like torches and all that kind of nasty stuff. But it was kind of the beginnings of these things. It was more the Christians were facing social ostracization. They were, you know, losing their jobs, maybe losing property, losing friends. I think actually 1 Peter, if there's a book that sort of parallels our historical situation, 1 Peter is it. It's not that they were, Christians were being, you know, killed left, right, and center, but they were feeling the pressure. They were feeling the heat because of the world's opposition to them. And so Peter writes to encourage these elect exiles to persevere in the faith, to keep going, to know that they've been forgiven, they have a hope that's secure for them, and now they are to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. They are to walk and to live holy lives unto the Lord. So, so it's, it's a reminder that Christians are called, if you go back to 1 Peter chapter 3, this is written to all believers. And so the calling to apologetics is a call for all believers to obey. Now, sometimes Christians, we fail to obey these commands. Sometimes, like I said, it can be due to we're afraid of people or we're just afraid of the response that we're going to get. Sometimes it's due to the busyness of life and it's like I just I don't have time to think on these things. It can also be due, though, to a misunderstanding of certain scriptures. So, someone might come up to you and say, well, what about Matthew 10, verse 19, when Jesus says to his disciples, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. So, does that mean that we're just to kind of, well, we'll just kind of go on. I don't need to study. I don't need to think. I don't need to prepare ahead of time because the Lord's just going to give me words to say right there. Well, without getting into too much detail, first of all, I'm going to remember who is Matthew 10 written to. Well, it's written to the first disciples. These are men who would receive, you know, spirit-inspired words, right? And so I, I think in these contexts, the Lord's saying he's going, to give, he's going to give the words that they're going to be saying. But there is an immense comfort for the believer is that you can prepare as much as you want, right? And that's good, and we're going to talk about that. Preparing is good. It's necessary. Peter talks about it but to know that the Lord is present with his people. The Lord is present with his people by his spirit, and so you can go into any kind of situation. Maybe it's a situation that you intentionally put yourself into. Maybe it's one, though, like these disciples, and it's you've been brought into it. You know, they've, you've been delivered over to authorities. You've been delivered over to people, and now here's your opportunity to give a defense. Well, the Lord, he is always present with his people. And so I think that's just one thing to think about right at the very beginning is that Christians can become very intimidated by the apologetic task because they hear 
They hear, maybe they've heard lectures by people who are really skilled in philosophy. They know all the big words. They can talk about metaphysics and ontology and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And so they get intimidated and think, well, that's just for the smart people. And, And I could never do that. But that's actually not true. The Christian is able to do it because the Lord has given to us all things necessary for life and godliness. We have his spirit. That's part of the gift of the new covenant. You're not alone. You have the mind of Christ. He's given you actually a new mind. Yeah, is it perfect like Christ? No, but it's being renewed. You're growing. And of course, we have his word. And so the spirit then speaks through his word. So I think just as a, as a point of comfort then for the Christian right off the bat to know this is actually something you can do, not because you're so swift intellectually, but because the Lord is with you and he has given you all that you need to take the truth to the streets, to fulfill what he has required of you. He has given, you know, going back to Augustine, command what you will and give what you command, right? Well, the Lord has given us what he commands us to do. He's given us the ability to do that. Now, we know, of course, though, that Jesus isn't saying for us to be intellectually lazy, neglect preparation, because First Peter is very clear. We're called to uh, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So that word there, make a defense, well, it's the word apologion which we get our word apologetics from, right? And this is basic stuff. Many of you know it. It's rightly translated here as a defense. So it's not, we're not apologizing for the truth, but we are seeking to give a, a, a logical, biblical defense. And that's what he says there, to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, the word logos. A, a, a logical and of course, there he means also biblical, so logic not separated from the Bible. We'll talk a little bit more about that too. But a logical, biblical defense of why we have hope, why we have hope in the midst of suffering, why we have hope in the midst of persecution and trials. And so it is the Christian's duty to, uh, to be an apologist, and we have all the equipment necessary to do it. So, as I said, we're, we're gonna, we, we see this even modeled for us through the scriptures. We'll, we'll take a look at some of these models that we see. Next week, I'm going to look at kind of the core convictions for a biblical apologetic method. Um, we've got all these why questions coming towards us. As I said, people that are restless. Sometimes the questions that come to us are sincere, and other times they come in forms of hostile accusations. Right, So, um, the early church, they knew what it was like, like to face accusations and ridicule for their own convictions and practices. So, for instance, in Luke 24, verse 11, Jesus' resurrection was reported as an idle tale. You know, just, you know, it's just a myth. Don't listen to it. Matthew 28, the resurrection was called, people were referring to it as a lie. Acts 26, verse 8, that it was impossible for Christ to be raised from the dead. On the day of Pentecost, Christians were accused of being drunk. Acts 2, verse 13. Stephen, in Acts chapter 6, he was accused of rejecting God's revelation 
in the Old Testament. And the church was accused in Acts 17 of political insurrection. So there's sometimes sincere why questions from people that maybe the Lord is beginning to work on. Right? They're, they're actually wondering, why, why is it this way? But then there's also, you know, the why questions that come from a harsher angle, uh, more hostile, more accusation. And so in response to these accusations, we find the apostles defending the faith. Paul would often go into the synagogues and he would what? He would reason with the people, same word used here, reason with them from the scriptures, showing that Jesus was the Messiah. So we see that modeled by Jesus, by the apostles, even by the prophets in the Old Testament, all throughout this, this giving a defense of the truth. But really what I want to think about this morning for the rest of our time, so that's kind of, that's the, that's kind of the calling of the apologists, recognizing that it's a call for us all, is focusing mainly, though, on the, the character of the apologist. The character. So as we've seen, Peter instructs all believers to always be prepared to give a defense for why we have hope. Okay? Now we've got to understand the context, as I said, in which these uh, instructions were given. Peter writes to these elect exiles, he writes to encourage them to persevere in the faith in the midst of sufferings. But in the midst of that, as you read Peter, which I encourage you to maybe just even this week or over the next couple of weeks, read through First Peter. And you'll see that there's a persistent call to holiness. There's a persistent call to be a peculiar people. You know, strange in the eyes of the world because we are distinct from the world. And so... For instance, in 1 Peter chapter 1, if you flip there, 1 Peter 1, verse 14, Peter says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That last quote there taken from Leviticus eleven forty-four. 44. Uh, in chapter 2, Peter highlights Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone, and he describes the church in chapter 2, verse 5, as a holy priesthood, and in chapter 2, verse 9, as a holy nation. And so you, you see this word, we can keep going, there's other places in the scriptures, where this, the, the emphasis lay on the holiness of God's people, their distinctiveness, that they have been set apart, their unique and now they're called to devote themselves to the Lord in a unique way. And so, I, I'd make the case that there is one absolutely necessary way in which we prepare to give a defense, and that is by a holy life. A holy life. So before we get to all kind of the, the methods of argumentation and thinking through the details of the text, we've got to recognize that there is a proper holiness of life without which your apologetic is going to fail. It's going to fail if you don't have a holy life. And so the first thing you see there, if you go back to chapter 3, is if we're going to be effective apologists, we must first honor, the Christ, honor Christ the Lord as holy. You see that there in verse 15? He begins there. Uh, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy holy. So our relationship then to 
Jesus Christ, shapes the content of our message as well as the method in which we interact with others. So we're preaching the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We're proclaiming the Lordship of Christ. But we're also actually first called to live under it. We're called to live under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That in our hearts, and he's not meaning they're just, you know, your, your own private life and it doesn't mean anything, but from your heart, your life is going to change, right? So in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. That means he is to be set apart. He is to be unique. He is not just one of many you know, teachers that you listen to. He is not just one of many prophets or gurus. He is the Lord. He is the Lord. And, and it's actually really important that Peter emphasizes this because, again, what were the Christians facing? Well, they're facing opposition, persecution, and primarily they're facing it because of their refusal to submit to Caesar as Lord. Caesar demanded the people's worship, and the Christian, obviously, the Christians refused to give it. And so even the way that this is structured, which comes out more clearly in, in the Greek, it emphasizes the lordship of Christ. It begins with kurios, Lord, Jesus Christ, set apart as holy. In other words, it's emphasizing here the lordship of Christ over against all these other competing so-called lords. There's no one that gets to compare with Jesus Christ for the position of ultimate authority. And so Peter reminds Christians that we must honor Christ the Lord as holy. Um, so what this means, very basically, is that you cannot be a Christian apologist just by knowing facts about the Bible. Obviously, you need to know facts about the Bible. Part of preparation is knowing the truth. You just think of... Uh, the illustration I've heard before, you know, a bank teller, how do, they, how do they know the difference between a counterfeit $20 bill and one that's real? Well, they spend a lot of time studying, not the counterfeit, but the real bill, right? They know all the ins and the outs because there's so many ways that you can counterfeit it. But if you know the real, the real bill, then you'll be able to spot the counterfeits all over the place. Well, a Christian, yeah, part of our preparation is knowing the scriptures, knowing the truth, but actually, Peter gets to something even more fundamental here. You need to know Christ. In, in your hearts, he's going to be set apart as holy. In other words, there's a, there's a posture of humility and submission and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, unless you have that, apologetics is going to fail. Apologetics is going to fail because... That is the apologetic task as we're calling people to submit to the Lordship of Christ. And of course, doing apologetics and evangelism requires great wisdom. Wisdom in interacting with objections, giving reasons for our hope. You know, Jesus, again, when he sends out his disciples, says, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And of course, wisdom begins and it ends with the fear of the Lord. So that's really what Peter's getting to, is, is you've got to fear, fear the Lord. And the reason we can say that is because actually Peter's quoting from Isaiah chapter 8. He's quoting from Isaiah 8. Now, if you just flip over there really quickly, I'm actually going to use this in our liturgy later on. But Isaiah 8, Pastor Rob preached on this uh, a year or two ago. Isaiah 8 verse 12 do not call 
conspiracy, all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. Now, Peter talked about do not fear, right? He just talked about that in the context of 1 Peter 3, 15. Verse 13 of Isaiah 8, But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy, let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. Now, the interesting thing there is that then Peter is saying he's taking and referring to Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, as worthy of this same fear as the Lord of hosts. Right? So we see even the deity of Christ emphasized in this passage. But what you see here is this, this posture of submission, of fear, of reverence towards the Lord Jesus Christ. And unless you have that, apologetics is just going to be, it's going to be just one intellectual exercise among many. Rather than, rather than, and this is what I want to emphasize, the apologetic work is actually stemming from our worship of Christ. We're, in, in the work of apologetics, it's a part of our worship, of our setting apart Christ as holy, of fearing him. And from that, then, we're going to be given the wisdom, even as we submit to him in his word, to, uh, to interact with all these different objections that we face, even, even the why questions that we talked about. So right now, just I know many of you, most of you are believing in Jesus Christ. You've, you've, set, you've set apart Christ in your hearts. But if you haven't, you've got to settle this right now. So here, here's the... Here's the evangelistic part of the evangelism and apologetics course. You've got to settle it in your hearts right now if you haven't already. Is Christ your Lord? Is he your Lord? Is he set apart as truly unique, one of a kind, as one who is worthy of worship and reverence? Or, is, as I said, is he just one of kind of many people that you look to? Um, you know, in, in recent years, obviously, kind of the apologetics field has been plagued by scandal. Most famously, many of you know Ravi Zacharias. And I, and I don't mean to bring it up just to drag the name through the mud, so to speak. But what I want you to see here is that he forgot the first rule of apologetics. The first rule of apologetics is to set apart Christ, the Lord, as holy. Right? You can have all sorts of intellectual understanding. You can, you can know the laws of logic left, right, and center and be able to kind of mop the floor, so to speak, with your opponents. But if you're not submitting to Christ, it's no good. It's no good. And so it's crucial that the honor of Christ is primary in our focus in apologetics. Um, now, from that, we see Peter's call to holiness of conduct in our relationships with others. So, our proper relationship to the Lord. And then he emphasizes these various dimensions that we interact with in this world. And so we are to, secondly then, speaking of the character of the apologist as one who is holy, well, we honor the Lord with Christ-like conduct towards others. Um, so we prepare well to give an answer by walking in love towards our family, our friends, and even with our enemies. So Peter, as you're familiar with, he talks about the good conduct that Christians are to maintain even as they endure opposition and oppression from civil government, from unjust masters, unbelieving spouses. He says like 
one of the key features of your life that is even going to give you opportunities then to share the gospel is that you are a peculiar people in your love for undeserving people. And so, actually, again, the apologetic task begins with a call to a holy life, which looks like honoring those around us, in our homes, in our churches, even our enemies. And so, um, you, can, you can read that. I won't read it now, but you can read that beginning in 1 Peter 3, the context there, verses 8 and following. He talks of, of the kind of relation, what, what the relationships are to look like, what kind of virtues they are to be marked with. And, and so really then, what we actually have to emphasize here is the necessity of Christians to have good behavior. Right? And everybody's like, ooh, talking about behavior. We've got to get to the matter of the heart. Well, we've seen that it begins with the, the posture of the heart setting apart Christ as Lord. So yeah, our behavior begins with knowing Christ but behavior is actually something that, or Christian behavior is something that believers must exemplify. Peter's very clear uh, in, chapter, in verse 16 there, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ, your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Uh, earlier he talks about some, some will see your good behavior and they'll glorify God. So, it can bring two responses. It can maybe, it can make them more mad and they'll be put to shame one day when the truth is vindicated on the day of judgment or your good behavior can actually be one of the means that the Lord uses to see, oh, these are, these are an odd people, right? They're, they're odd. They love their enemies. They don't retaliate. Uh, they're, they're quick to pursue unity even amidst all their differences. All these kinds of things. Uh, Wives are, are submitting to their husbands, even unbelieving husbands. These are weird, odd people. And so it gives an opportunity then for us to say, well, why are we like this? Well, we're like this because Christ is Lord, right? And so Peter really emphasizes then the character of the believer as one who is marked by a certain uh, quality of life, a certain behavior. Of course, that section there yet do it with gentleness and respect, right? So we're always ready to give a defense. We don't, we don't um, as one apologist, Cornelius, Cornelius Van Til, just to paraphrase him, as he put it, he said, we don't surrender one inch on the truth, but we keep buying the next cup of coffee for our opponents. So uh, it, it goes to show then we treat others with a proper dignity, respect, that they are owed if only for the fact that they are created in the image of God. They're not necessarily owed it because they're such lovely people. Our enemies aren't owed respect because they're, they're such virtuous people. They're owed respect and honor and even a gentle approach when we're doing this apologetic work um, because they are created in the image of God. And yet, in love for them, we're, also, we're actually going to speak the truth to them as well, right? I've used the illustration before, so I, I liken gentleness to the difference between watering your plants, you know, with a hose that's on, on the jet setting versus the shower. Well, your plants need water, just like we all need the truth and we need to live in submission to it. But the way in which it's delivered actually matters. You're going to do a lot more damage if you, if you just crank on the jet setting than if you, if you put the shower and let the water soak in over time. 
So, so that, there's a proper kind of gentleness, uh, a, a conviction that is brought under the control of the Spirit. Okay? So that's what, one of the things that is often emphasized or uh, brought up in apologetic conversations is that people don't like it because it just becomes argumentative. You know, you're just in there and, and just the one guy's looking, as I said, to do the Michael Jordan move on the other and dunk on him and, you know, one-up him. And it becomes just this back and forth, no one gets anywhere. And, and some for right reason. Some because sometimes I think it's given an unfair, uh, unfair treatment because people just don't like confrontation, uh, which is not right either. But there is a proper delivery of the message with gentleness and respect towards others. So, all I have to say, we've got our guard then against being abrasive in our apologetic and the way in which it's delivered. And we've also, as I said, you've got to watch out for abdication on the truth as well. You know, well, I don't want to offend anybody. I, I want to be a good witness. There's lots of talk about kind of being winsome Christians. Well, we want to be winsome Christians, but we can't abdicate on the truth either. And of course, this then again requires great wisdom. How then are we going to be courage, have courage and, and defend the truth and not give up an inch and yet be gentle and respectful? Well, it requires nothing short of then the power of the Holy Spirit, which the Lord has given to us. So we, we, can't, we can't abdicate on the truth because we fear losing our jobs, losing relationships, losing cultural capital. If we draw the lines and defend the truth, Jesus was gentle and respectful and they still crucified him. Right? So, I, and I think that's something just to emphasize, even as, you know, there's lots of talk about, well, we don't want to, we want to be good witnesses. We want to be good witnesses. And, and you know, we don't want to offend, offend people in the world. Well, we don't want to offend, offend them unnecessarily. But even Peter implies that there's going to be, when you do what is good, and part of what is good is speaking the truth, when you do this, you're going to be slandered and people are going to revile you because they did that to Christ, right? So the assumption is that if, you're, if your game plan and your gauge for, you know, how successful your apologetics is, is how much people like you, is that can't be the gauge. Otherwise, you're, you're probably abdicating on the truth somewhere. Yet, we must do it with gentleness and respect. So, one of the greatest apologetic tools then that you have is a consistent Christian lifestyle. It's a consistent Christian lifestyle. Of course, the greatest, one of the greatest objections people bring up about Christians, why they don't want to listen, is because they're a bunch of hypocrites, right? They say one thing, they do another. Well, we don't want to be hypocrites. We want our lives to have consistency. Consistency under the Lordship of Jesus Christ and then living out His commands, even in our various relationships. Um, I want to quote just from, uh, from a book called Every Thought Captive, written by a guy named Richard Pratt. It's a fairly lengthy quote, but I think it's, it sums up kind of what we've been talking about. This is what he says. A consistent daily Christian walk is an indispensable aspect of biblical apology. All too often, Christians become so interested in the techniques of practicing apologetics or the theories supporting apologetics that they forget how their lives affect their defense. It is this neglect which often reduces Christian apologetics to hot air, empty words without the concrete testimony 
of a godly life. The non-Christian world often judges the value of the gospel by the consistency of life observable in the believer. At church, work, or at home, we render our defense ineffectual by inconsistencies in our lives. On occasion, one can hear a Christian defending the faith before an unbeliever, and at the same time attacking his Christian brethren with whom he has differences on secondary matters. Such Christians often fail to realize that their outspoken opposition to other believers actually hinders their defense of the faith. In fact, there is hardly a greater obstacle to Christian apologetics than the fighting and bickering which goes on in the church. An employee who becomes intoxicated at the company Christmas party can hardly stand with boldness for the gospel when the real meaning of Christmas is discussed at the next Monday morning. A Christian student will find it difficult to defend Christianity before his class if the night before he was caught cheating on his assignments. In our neighborhoods, the unity of our homes, the physical appearance of our homes, our friendly and helpful attitudes towards our neighbors all affect our ability to offer an effective defense of the faith. When these areas of our lives fall short of the biblical standard, our apology will fall short as well. We may try to talk non-Christians into heaven, but if we live as those destined for hell, we can hardly hope for much success. The mightiest defenders of the faith will fall if they lack a consistent life. So friends, I, I think just as we start out here, this is so key. This is so key. Is striving for a consistent Christian life. First, in bringing ourselves under the lordship of Christ personally. And then in living out his commands in these various relationships at home, in the church, even in a response to the authorities put over us. Otherwise, the apologetic words that we speak, they're going to fall flat. They're going to fall flat, and the Lord is not honored in them. And so, um, we'll just kind of leave it there. That, that's kind of the emphasis I want to put this morning is just on the, the character, the calling of the Christian to be holy as the, as the chief way in which we do, uh, or at least the, the foundation of apologetics is our, our personal devotion to the Lord. And our collective, I'd say, even our collective devotion to the Lord as a church. I'll open it up here just for questions for a few minutes. Um, and then we'll, we'll pray and close. Any questions, comments? I'll try to repeat them right here. I mean, it depends on what, what's kind of their hang-up. Yeah. I'll bring a couple books next week that I can recommend. I can show them. Um, oh, you're not going to be there? Okay. I, I'll talk to you after. Um, I think the, the one, like I said, is called Know Why You Believe. Know Why You Believe. It's fairly short, too, so it's not like a massive book. And it goes through Know Why You Believe. Um, God, the Bible is true. Know Why You Believe. Jesus is the Messiah, the only way to heaven. You know, all these kinds of kind of main objections that people have. So Know Why You Believe by Scott Oliphant is the guy's name. So that's one. Yes? So the question is, is you know, if somebody's involved in, in a certain kind of demographic, let's say they're, they're going to heavy metal concerts, is that safe for a Christian to be involved in as an opportunity then to witness kind of thing, right? Um, I mean, without getting into the whole debate on music, I think the Christian can say that there are clear... There are clear um, environments to be in which are sinful. And, and so for, 
you know, for a for a, a man to be in a in a particular club or something to be a witness, well, that that would be unwise, right, and and even sinful. And then there's matters of Christian freedom in terms of music and stuff. But I think every that's where that's where actually being involved in a local church is what you're going to have. You're going to have various voices speaking to you who know you, and they're going to say to you, "Yeah, brother or sister, I that." That is not wise. Just knowing you, knowing the background you came from, for you to be in that situation. Why don't you, why don't you um, steward your time and energy over here in these relationships? So it's a little bit contingent upon who the person is. As I said, there's certain things that are black and white. You can't be in those environments, even with a desire to bear witness, um, because it would be unwise. It would unnecessarily provoke the passions of the flesh to, to sin. Um, but then other, other ways, there's, there's some freedom there. As I said, again, that's where then the collective wisdom of being part of a local church who knows you and can keep you accountable, they can then help steer you and, um, and give you counsel in that way. Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll, talk, we'll talk a little bit about that. Yeah, the question was, um, are we going to talk about kind of the different apologetic approaches? You got presuppositional, kind of classical, evidentialist. We'll talk a little bit about that um, for sure, so... That'll be in coming weeks. As I said, this is introductory. Hopefully it's helpful and just spurs you on, I think, even this week to, to be one who is watchful and pursuing holiness of life by the power of the Spirit as, as a way to then offer an apologetic. Um, let me just pray, and then we'll get ready for the main service. Gracious Father, we thank you for the fact that you are holy and in Christ, you have declared us to be holy in your sight. And so we too have been set apart for you now as your children. And we ask that you would help us to live in a way that is consistent with who we are. And that we would be people who would live with the fear of the Lord before our eyes. That we would not fear those around us. But that we would live in such a way that testifies to the um, to the truthfulness of the gospel. And as we do so, that there would be opportunities then that people would be coming to us asking, why are we so different? Why, why do you have hope in the midst of these trials? So we ask this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.